Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute podcast network. I'm Colin Robertson, your host and vice president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Today's episode is from a webinar funded by the United States Department of State. The goal of the program is to improve Canadian understanding of American policy perspectives, as well as to encourage better communications and coordination between Canada and the United States. The opinions, findings, and conclusions stated herein are those of the guest speakers and the moderator only, and they do not reflect the, those of the United States Department of State. Well, today we look at American attitudes to policies and politics, domestic and foreign, as the Biden administration completes its first six months in office. As Canadians know, there is no relationship more important to Canada than that of the United States. We need situational awareness of American attitudes in order to effectively advance our interests and to work in partnership with the country that is our friend, neighbor, biggest trade partner, and closest ally. Former U.S. Ambassador David Jacobson used to observe that, quote, Canadians think they know everything to know about the United States, and Americans think they know all they need to know about Canada. But as Ambassador Jacobson would then remark, we are both wrong. Today's look at the American mood is an effort to improve our knowledge of the cacophony, complexity, and often confusing republic that is the United States of America. To lead us in this discussion, I am delighted to be joined by Bruce Stokes. Bruce is the executive director of the Transatlantic Task Force, Together or Alone, Choices and Strategies for Transatlantic Relations for 2021 and Beyond at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Bruce is also an associate fellow at Chatham House and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, he was the director of Global Economic Attitudes at the Pew Research Center in Washington. A former international economics correspondent for the National Journal, Bruce and I first met almost 20 years ago at a reception around a pool in Rabat, Morocco at a German Marshall Fund conference. As I remarked to him, we were both the guys without ties on. Since then, I've been a, the beneficiary of Bruce's incisive and insightful analysis. Bruce will present his slides for the first 15 or so minutes. Then he and I will talk about them for the next 15 or so minutes. Then my colleague, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, who will be monitoring the Zoom Q&A function, so please use it, or read your questions to Bruce. Bruce, over to you. Colin, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who's, who's on this call. Um, and I look forward to your questions and comments because that's what I learned, how I learn out of these things is, is what, what you see is important and how you interpret uh, the data. I couldn't agree with Colin more. I think that one of the things that's lacking in international relations is we don't understand each other's politics sufficiently. And I say that as an American, who doesn't understand Canadian politics. So <laughs> I need a lecture on Canadian politics uh, as well. But uh, the subject today is, is Americans' views of their role in the world, what's important to them, uh, and what that may mean in the Biden administration in terms of its foreign policy. Um, and uh, the unfortunately, the, the, the deep partisanship that we now have in American public opinion about uh, uh, foreign policy issues as well as domestic policy issues. So let me uh, share the screen with you in terms of, of um, some of the data we have. Most of this data comes from 
recent Pew uh, Research Center uh, uh, surveys, but also Gallup surveys and, and others. Um, and um, before I get into the public opinion data, I just want to share a couple of observations about public opinion data. I was for many years a journalist, uh, but for the last 10 years I was a, um, of my career, I was a pollster. Uh, and one of the things I learned about polling uh, that I think is important to keep in mind is one is that uh, the best questions to ask publics are not factual questions, not questions that require knowledge. I used to joke that if you uh, expect a knowledge answer from the public, you'll get your heart broken because basically most people are not like the people in this call. They don't read the newspaper every day. They don't follow world affairs every day. Uh, but that doesn't mean they don't have opinions about things. And it doesn't mean that they don't have emotions about them. And it doesn't mean that they won't vote on those emotions. So as you look at public opinion data, bear in mind that what the best public opinion questions are picking up on people's emotions, not necessarily their factual understanding of the issues. And those of us who follow these issues more closely, I think often look down on people who don't understand them. And I think we have to understand that in a democracy, what we wanna know is what people's feelings are about issues because that's how they're gonna vote. And frankly, that's how they operate in the marketplace. They go out and buy a red car rather than a blue car on emotion because they like red, even though it's the same car under the hood. And we say, that's fine. That's the market mechanism. Well, we have to understand that public opinion, the best public opinion data picks up emotions. Uh, and the second uh, observation I had after a decade of doing public opinion, which I think is important to remember, is in any public opinion uh, findings, you're going to find contradictions. You're going to say, how could it be that the public says this on one question and says something totally different on a different question? And we have to understand that human beings are infinitely capable of holding contradictory emotions at the same time. Think about it in your own personal context. You're angry at your kids and you love your kids at the same time. And people, people have contradictory feelings about these issues. And the challenge of leadership is not to cherry pick the answer that you like, but to try to wrestle with the contradictions that the, your voters, your citizens are presenting to you. And this is one of the challenges leaders in all countries face uh, with, with public opinion. So that's my little uh, um, sermon on public opinion, but uh, let's get on with the survey of American public attitudes. One is the good news that the US, how is the US seen abroad First off, we have to understand Americans care how they're seen abroad. They, they have a great <laughs> desire to be loved abroad, as I think as we all do. Uh, and so Americans do care very much uh, about what other countries think of them. And in the last year, that opinion has gone up dramatically. Uh, opinion both of the United States and the opinion of the US president. And one thing to bear in mind, and I can tell you after a decade of doing this research, opinion of the US president drives opinion of the United States, not the other way around. That when opinion of the US president goes up, opinion of the US goes up, not as much, but it goes up. When opinion of the US president goes down, public opinion, that, that drives down the image of the United States. 
you might say that there's really no connection to these things. They shouldn't be connected. They are connected. I can show you data that goes back more than 20 years. And it's, it's, it's like these curves follow each other. Uh, this is the results of the most recent Pew survey around the world in terms of attitudes towards the US. Uh, thank you very much, Canadians. Six in 10 of you have a favorable view of the United States. We really appreciate that. Uh, but you're right in line with the rest of the world, which is uh, the overall median is 61%. Um, uh, I must admit, I don't know what we did to the Kiwis that 55% of them don't like us. Uh, but that, that probably requires further exploration. Uh, and it, this is a, a, a uh, looking at the upturn in views of the United States in a range of countries. As you can see, in Canada, it went from 35% in the last year of the uh, Trump administration to 61% today. That's a huge one-year jump. Um, international views of President Biden also are very positive. 77% of Canadians have a positive view of uh, Canada. That's of, 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 of Biden. That actually is more or less in line with the overall global uh, median, uh, one of the stronger uh, uh, supports for Biden. This does not include Canadian public opinion, but I had to show it to you. This is the opinion of the US president in four European countries over the last two decades. And um, I think it's something we need to focus on because it's a reminder of how volatile these opinions can be. Uh, as one uh, German official said to me when I showed him the initial Trump era data, isn't that interesting? It took eight years for George Bush to get down to this low level. It took Trump two months. And uh, as you can see, uh, opinion of the US president jumped up dramatically in Europe as soon as Obama was elected. He wasn't Bush, so they loved him. And uh, when Trump was elected, he wasn't Obama, so they hated him. Um, uh, but we now have another love affair with the US president in Europe. Uh, dramatic increase, uh, actually more dramatic than you, we saw in, in Canada. Uh, we'll see if it's, it's sustainable. Uh, as you notice, uh, the Obama uh, uh, approval uh, uh, bounced around and, and declined a bit, but still remained fairly positive throughout his, his tenure. Uh, we'll see what happens, as I say, uh, with, with Biden. When people were asked what they liked about Biden, uh, they think he's well qualified, he's a strong leader. This will drive Trump nuts because people think he's a stronger leader than Trump was. Um, uh, that they, they think he's less dangerous and less arrogant. Uh, and uh, around the world, they support kind of initial Biden administration policies of rejoining the WHO, uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, very popular in Canada, both those uh, initiatives hosting a potential, potentially hosting a summit of the democratic nations, uh, allowing more refugees into the US, all these policy initiatives have broad support. Now I would warn you about these policy, the support for policy initiatives. At Pew in 2009, uh, when we surveyed about the incoming Biden, Obama administration, and we asked people, what do you expect of this new guy? People said he's going to end climate change. He's going to bring peace to the Middle East. <laughs> Things that were clearly not going to happen under Obama. Uh, and um, so there are unrealistic expectations of the American president, I think based on the fact that people have fallen in love with him. It, uh, what was interesting in 
2013, when we ask people, you know, has, Ob has Obama lived up to these expectations? People said, no, but we still like him. So <laughs> it's not at all clear that these policy support is what drives uh, uh, people's uh, views of uh, the US president. The bad news, unfortunately, among public opinion is that the Trump era and the January 6th insurrection has undermined American democracy as a role model for the world. Pew asked people, I thought in a very good question, uh, do you believe that the US uh, democracy is a, is a role model, a good model uh, for the world? Notice in Canada that 69% of respondents said U.S. democracy used to be a good example, but it has not been in recent years. So the Trump era actually damaged the U.S. reputation as that shining city on the hill that everybody want to aspire to as a, as a democracy. And that was largely the case all over the world. And probably what should be most disturbing for Americans is that young people were the most likely to say that the US has never been a good example for other countries to follow. US democracy has never been an example for, you, for other countries to follow. Notice that 35% of 18 to 29 year olds in, I'm sorry, 24% of, of 18 to 29 year olds in Canada said that the US has never been a good example. Its democracy has never been a good example for the world. That is a sentiment that if it remains as people age is something the US is gonna to have to deal with going forward. Uh, as I don't need to tell Canadians this, American partisanship has complicated the US dealing with the challenges facing the US and the world. Uh, I can tell you having followed public opinion closely, worked on it for 10 years, but followed it for four years. And, and the data bears this out. The partisanship in the United States has never been worse, at least since before the American Civil War in the 1850s. And this really does divide the society in ways in dealing with the world, dealing with internal issues that we really have not seen in generations. This is a great example of the volatility of public opinion and the partisanship um, and raises questions about whether any of these substantive questions uh, are really about, about the question in hand or whether they are just a reflection of partisanship. This is a standard Gallup question. Are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the position of the US in the world today? And the only way to interpret this data is when my guy's in power, I'm satisfied with the US position in the world. And when my guy's not in power, I'm not satisfied with the US position in the world. And um, the US position in the world hasn't changed that much in many of these cases. So uh, uh, it is, I think, a reminder that partisanship has infected almost every aspect of American life. Um, this is a question that um, where the um, Pew Research Center asked people about their foreign policy priorities. Uh, and as you can see, 75% of Americans said protecting the jobs of American workers uh, or should be a foreign policy priority. But that was 85% of Republicans and 67% of Democrats. Uh, protecting against terrorist attacks, 71% said it was an overall foreign policy objective, but 
again, it was by 21 percentage points, Republicans were more worried about that than Democrats. And if you go down to dealing with climate change, 70% of Democrats said it should be a priority, but only 14% of Republicans. So in almost every foreign policy issue you can ask, uh, there's a partisan difference, a large partisan uh, difference. Uh, notice though at the very bottom, there's almost no support for promoting democracy in other nations. I think George W. Bush's efforts and failed efforts in Iraq have, have poisoned that idea in American foreign policy for some time to come. Uh, this is of interest because, as you know, the Biden administration touts itself as wanting to develop a foreign policy for the middle class. Um, we took the Pew sentiment on various foreign policy issues and split it by income groups. And what is interesting is the middle income group, the thing that they are most strongly in favor of in terms of a foreign policy priority is protecting U.S. jobs. So I dare say, when foreigners say, oh, this foreign policy for middle class is really about protectionism, they're not totally wrong. That, that's just one of the, one of the uh, strongest appeals of that, of that slogan, basically. Um, when you ask people, how do you feel about Biden and doing the right thing in world affairs, Republicans say they don't have much uh, belief in him being able to do that, no much confidence in him. And Democrats overwhelmingly say, of course, we have great confidence in him handling world affairs. Um, and when you ask about specific foreign policy questions, while there is confidence in Biden, majority confidence in response to all of these questions, dealing with climate change, dealing with terrorism, uh, improving relations with allies, um, again, if you it's not really just among Democrats. I mean, it's, it's the support among Democrats that gives you that majority overall. Uh, basically, Republicans have no confidence in him. And you would imagine as a result on all these issues, they're not likely to support Biden administration initiatives in these areas. Um, what are Americans' overall views of international relationships? Because that obviously feeds into the policy process. Uh, majorities are very in, committed to multilateralism, despite all of the fears around the world. When you ask specific questions about to Americans about you support NATO, overwhelmingly so. The UN, overwhelmingly so. The WHO, even overwhelmingly so. Although, frankly, I'm not sure until the pandemic anybody even knew what the WHO was. Um, but again, it's highly partisan. Less than half of Republicans support the WHO or the UN, and only a bare majority of Republicans support NATO, where it's almost nine in 10, eight in 10 Democrats support these multilateral institutions. This is an interesting example. This is support for NATO in particular. Um, notice that except for a brief period in a couple of Republican administrations where a bare half of the, of, uh, the uh, Republican Party supported NATO. Um, the Democrats have consistently supported NATO more than Republicans. And I think the interesting thing is that there's now a 24 percentage point difference between Democratic support for NATO and Republican support for NATO. And that basically is... Uh, ties the, the largest partisan gap. There was a similar partisan gap in 2018. Um, so the, uh, 
support for NATO, which is strong among Americans, is uh, really a partisan issue. This uh, finding and that I'm going to show you on China, I think, are two of the more disturbing findings. Views of Russia have worsened significantly in recent years. And what is most important, this is Gallup data going back to 89, so the fall of the wall. Negative views of Russia have not been this bad in America ever since the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so, um, you know, that is something the Biden administration needs to contend with as it thinks about how do we deal with Russia. Uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Americans are, uh, their sympathies are more with Israel, that's the dark blue line, than they are the green line with the Palestinians. I think this is not, probably not surprising. But, I th but focus on that gr dark green line for a minute. Support for the Palestinians has doubled since 2013. It's still only a quarter of Americans support the, Isra the Palestinians more than the um, Israelis. But um, the support for Palestinians is growing. And this is probably why. This is the difference between support for Israelis minus the support for Palestinians. And notice that even though young people, those 18 to 35 in the United States, uh, they're 13 percentage points more likely to support the Israelis than the Palestinians. Less than a decade ago, that they were 43 percentage points more likely to support the Israelis than the Palestinians. The support for Israel among young Americans is plummeting. And what this says about the future of U.S. kind of knee-jerk support for Israel, we don't know. But if I were as an Israeli, I would look at this and I'd say, we got a future problem here uh, going forward, uh, because the next generation of Americans uh, is far less supportive of, um, of Israel than, say, my generation. On China, again, we have not seen this uh, negative uh, view of China uh, in, um, in a decade and a half. This is as far back as the data goes. Uh, and you can see it's bipartisan, although the Republicans are more negative towards China than the Democrats, but two thirds of Democrats are negative towards China. And when you, but when you, and when you look at specific issues dealing with China, there you begin to see partisanship again. You see, um, 53% of, of Americans say China's an enemy. On balance, only 20% of Democrats say that. Uh, uh, the one interesting point is that Republicans and Democrats agree that the US should try to promote human rights in China, even if it harms economic relations. Uh, and again, there's more or less symmetry on human rights policy uh, as Chinese human rights process, a serious problem for the United States. So on human rights, there is a partisan agreement on doing something about China. I would warn you based on experience that it was only about a year and a half or two years after Tiananmen Square that we were back to doing business with China on a regular basis. So, you know, human rights is, a, is an emotional issue. Uh, I personally believe we should be very tough on China about human rights, but Building a policy based on that is, I think, 
a question mark simply because the public has shown that its ability to sustain a tough position on human rights um, wanes very rapidly, or at least it has in the past. And we'll see what would happen in the future if we really got tough on China on, on human rights. Um, finally, uh, as you may fear, uh, and those of you, because you're Canadians, follow these things closely, Americans' views on key foreign policy issues are a product of their information bubbles, more so than ever before. Uh, this is, again, a Pew survey. If you, your major source of news is from right-leaning uh, news sources like Fox, 89% uh, support reducing illegal immigration. If your news primarily comes from left-leaning uh, um, groups like MSNBC or NPR, only 3% want to reduce legal, illegal immigration. You see this across the board. You know, we, we are definitely a product of our news bubbles. Uh, and specifically with China here, you can see uh, if you get your information from right-leaning sources, 75% um, of those people, those Americans, believe China's an enemy. If you get your news from left-leaning uh, audiences, uh, eight, only 18% see China as an enemy. So it's, it, where, where we turn to get our news really does influence our, our views on foreign policy in uh, you know, again, an unprecedented way, I think. So I look forward to your comments and, and questions. So uh, let's, let's turn over to that. Thanks, that was terrific. Uh, as you said at the outset, I'm glad you did make that definition between sort of facts and feelings. And as you said, feelings really do uh, trump things. And then as you also pointed out that you can hold uh, more than one opinion at the same time. And of course, as you correctly observed at the outset, anybody with children understands this. Um, one of the things you're working on now is part of your title is a project to improve transatlantic ties. Before I get into some of the questions rising from your presentation, do you want to tell us a bit about that project and what yeah, you've learned? We, we um, at Sure Marshall Fund, we came up with this idea, or actually I came up with this idea, we, that we, before the election, our idea was we're going to have an election. And um, uh, normally after an election is a time to kind of rejigger and rethink what you can do. And uh, it was based on an assumption that there were certain challenges facing North America and Europe that we shared. And that, again, this was an assumption, which some might dispute, that we really couldn't deal with alone, uh, that we really needed to work on these together or else we were going to fail. And the six issues we focused on were future pandemics, climate, China, technology, economic recovery, and, tech, and um, uh, security. So we came up with a series of, of recommendations uh, before the election. Um, I think it was very well received in the administration, I am told, you know. Um, and um, frankly, it was probably pretty good that Biden got elected because most of the recommendations for cooperation would have fell, fallen flat in a second Trump administration, given uh, Trump's uh, um, animosity towards Europe and cooperation in general. Um, but um, so it, you know, it, it seems to me it's an ongoing issue of um, can we identify areas where we need to work together and then put some meat on those bones? I mean, how is it that we can work together? So a couple of the issues that, that we're still pursuing is are things like, you know, it, 
there's the issue of emerging technologies and the importance those will play economically and in security terms and so forth. I think there's a general agreement that to, to be a leader in these emerging technologies, you need money, you need scientific talent, and you need a market. Now, the reality is China has all of those things now and is expanding it through the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, Americans used to believe they needed cooperation with nobody. My interviewing in, in Silicon Valley has convinced me that there are leaders in Silicon Valley who now acknowledge that we need to work with others on these emerging technologies. And the problem in Europe is that they've had long experience of, of being dominated by American technology companies. So they're a little gun shy, but um, we propose that, that Europe and the United States, uh, Canada certainly should jointly invest in pre-competitive research and development on emerging technologies, such as supercomputing and AI and, and um, advanced biology and things of that nature. Um, and that um, then the question is, how do you do that? And, and one of the issues that I know I've been pushing recently is, could we come up with some advanced technology institute that we would jointly fund and support that would do the kind of research that the US Pentagon now has kind of put it all in the, the, into DARPA, DARPA being the Defense Advanced Research Project, uh, which has had so many great successes, but uh, the, the Biden administration has thought about the idea of, should we have an, an advanced research project for medical issues, which I think is a great idea, but why don't we do this with our allies together? That means we'd have more talent and more funds and um, would stitch ourselves together and, and might have a greater market for what we produce. All of this is pretty uh, ambitious, but it seems to me it's the way we need to approach the future together, whether it's in developing uh, renewable energy technologies or advanced medicines, um, let alone advanced computing and things of that nature. Uh, it wouldn't be easy because there's all sorts of issues to get into the digital economy. It's all sorts of issues of privacy, et cetera. But I do think that we need to um, be ambitious in that way because we are, we are competing with China. And I think this is the thing that we, we fail to fully appreciate and recognize. As, as we go forward. And it's, and, you know, it's not a military competition directly necessarily all the time, but it is, it is certainly an economic competition. One of the questions I want to ask is based on the survey evidence you presented and also the work you've been doing at the German Marshall Fund, how do governments like Canada operate in the deeply polarized environment that is now the United States? Because as you point out, you know, there, there's these big cleavages and there used to be this feeling that politics ended at the water's edge, but that's clearly not the case anymore. As we saw, for example, on NATO, which again, one of the surprise there is that Democrats tend to be more favorable towards NATO than Republicans, which right. wasn't always the case. So, and by the way, Democrats are more favorable towards trade than Republicans. Now that is also a switch because we violate Democrats as being protectionist. We all thought we knew about American sentiment towards trade. Democrats are much more in, in the Pew surveys, in the Gallup surveys, in the NBC News surveys, 
It is Democrats who are more supportive of global engagement through trade than Republicans. Now, I would warn you, again, this is part of the internally contradictory aspect of public opinion, is if you ask follow-up questions as we, as I insisted we do at Pew, Americans say they believe trade is good for the country and Democrats actually say that more than Republicans. But then when you ask Americans, well, does trade create jobs? No. Does trade uh, raise wages? No. And does trade lower prices? No. And for those of your, in your audience who are economists, they will know that economists don't say trade creates jobs or trade uh, raises wages. That's what politicians say. But economists argue you trade because it lowers prices, because it increases competition and lowers prices. We at Pew ask this question in 46 countries. There are two countries in the world where the consumers believe that trade lowers prices, Sweden and Israel. Nobody else does. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a, a challenge for those of us who believe in a global economy and global economic integration. Um, and, um, and, and the approach can't be what one famous American trade economist said to me when I shared this data with him. He said, oh, I guess we'll have to tell them again. <laughs> and, you know, telling people that this is good for them is not how you solve this issue, right? You have to show them that it's good for them. And that's a much more complicated issue. But it is um, um, how... Canadians deal with this polarized American environment is, I mean, far be it for me to know the, the, the answer to that. I think my advice to my Canadian friends or my European friends would be, look, you got to deal with both sides of the aisle in the United States. You always should. You never who's gonna know who's going to be in power in two years. And my experience has been that both sides often have good opinions and good reasons for those opinions. I would urge you to draw the line when you might be thinking about cooperating with people on either extreme in the United States who basically are not Democrats with a small d, you know, who are quasi-authoritarians. Um, I think that, that there have to be some principles here and, uh, Right now in American politics, there are more people like that on the right than on the left. That hasn't always been the case. And I'm sure there are still some people on the left who are authoritarians. It's just that you don't hear much from them, but you certainly hear from people in the United States on the right who are um, attracted to the authoritarian approach to politics and I think, and, and governing. And I think my advice to my foreign friends would be, you got to draw the line. Those are not people you want to support or deal with or give any credence to. Because at the end of the day, it is the preservation of American democracy that other people should be worried about. Because if we go off in a direction that's undemocratic in a major way, uh, I firmly believe not only will we be <laughs> a lesser person, a lesser country for it, but the world will be a lesser state for it. Okay, just on democracy, if the world doesn't look at the US as that 
citadel on the hill anymore, sort of a flawed uh, giant, democratic giant. Nonetheless, you look to the United States for support for democracy. And one of the things Mr. Biden's talked about, as you mentioned earlier, is to have a summit of the democracies. And I think he's been certainly doing a good job of late to bringing, uh, putting first of all, more emphasis on multilateralism, the institutions like NATO, uh, meeting with the Europeans, the roadmap we have with Canada, going down to Mexico, reaching out to the Quad and things like that. Um, how do we as allies then support that? Because the one observation I'd make is that the four years of Trump showed me that without American leadership, democracies flounder and authoritarians and those, those right or left-wing authoritarians on either side that you've spoken about, you know, crept in and do well. So, so what's your advice to the allies who want to see this succeed and, and want Biden in that sense, rather not because he's Democrat, but because he's the American president to lead? Well, look, I, I've been always wary of this call for a summit of democracies because I wasn't at all clear sure what was going to be the end product of that. What was it going to produce? And I think, frankly, my, this is my personal view, that a summit of democracies that was all about hortatory, you know, commitment to democracy and isn't it wonderful and we should all work together, that actually does damage, it seems to me. I mean, what, what are the deliverables from a summit of democracies? And it's got to be more than just, oh, we're going to unite with better cyber defenses against the enemies of democracy. Well, yeah, yeah, we should do that. Absolutely. Who, would, who can disagree with that? But I'm, it's not at all clear to me what we do together to defend and strengthen and enhance democracies because the challenges facing each of our democracies are sui generis to a certain extent. You know, in the US, let's face it, we're trying to run a country in the 21st century with an 18th century constitution. And, and it's almost impossible to change that constitution. And, you know, we have Supreme Court justices who believe, you know, we should try to understand through reading the letters of the writers of the constitution to their wives in the 18th century, you know, what they meant by these words in the constitution. I mean, this is, this is personally, this is nuts. You know, this is, this is uh, fundamentalism at its worst, but that's who we are and that's the challenge we face. And, um, you know, Germany has a different problem and France has a different problem. And so I do think that um, we got to be very careful with the summit democracies, how we proceed, what it does, what it means. My personal view is, and it was certainly the view of the people in our task force when we wrestled with, do we make some recommendations about democracy, was the best contribution we can all make to democracy and the furtherance of democracy is to better deal with the problems that our publics face so that they aren't tempted by authoritarianism. You know, the guy on the white horse who says this democracy is not working, but, you know, you vote for me and I'll solve your problem. You know, it's the Orban issue. Right. Right. Um, and I think that um, uh, if we are not better at resolving the challenges that face each of our individual societies and our populations and our voters, then the appeal of authoritarianism will grow and you know, even though I hate that idea, 
and I'm a Democrat with a small D to my core, you know, if you're an average person and your income hasn't grown in the United States throughout your entire adult life in real terms, which is, in fact, there are many people in America like that, right? Their, their income is flatlined in real terms for their entire adult life. And somebody says to you, I can fix that. <laughs> that's powerfully political, that's powerful appeal. And I think that, or, or you know, if you think about in the United States, for example, we now have between 13 and 14% of the population that is foreign born. This is the highest it's ever been except in two other times in our history. In the 1880s and the 1920s, we got to that same kind of level. Each of those times we had a populist backlash and we've had a populist backlash now. <laughs> now, I'm a strong advocate of immigration. And I think going forward, we need more immigration and we should do this. It's our obligation to the world and it's our obligation to our future, et cetera. But history's telling us something here that we better help our people better accommodate themselves to more and more foreign-born people in their midst, or we're gonna get another back populist backlash. And when you have a populist backlash, you don't just get an immigrant populist backlash against immigrants, you get a populist backlash, you know, against you know, all sorts of things, about against regulation, against taxation, against all sorts of things. And that's Let's face it, that's, that was what Donald Trump was all about. He came in on the immigration train, but he did all these other things too. And I think that, you know, we got to do a better job addressing some of these concerns of our publics. And, you know, that's not going to be easy. And look, if I don't, I don't have all the answers. I, just, I can help identify the problems, but that's easy. It's, it's resolving the issues that's the problem. And, and that's going to be a better challenge, bigger challenge. So six months in, because you look at the polling, Biden comes in and says, I'm going to deal with COVID. I'm going to get the recovery. I'm going to build back better. I'm going to build the middle class, you know, in a sense. And I'm going to grow democracy, but democracy starts at home, which I think is the right message for right. all the reasons you pointed out. Internationally, of course, is, is going to re reinforce multilateralism, which I think he's doing. Yeah. But how do Americans see how he's doing after six months? Or do they buy in? First of all, on COVID, Americans at least have had the opportunity to be vaccinated. Whether they choose to or not is another issue. Uh, but in terms of the economic recovery, it does seem, if you look at the stock market and you see job growth, is that reflected uh, yeah. in, in, in support for Biden overall it's, for him to be able to accomplish? Biden's support in, in most polls is, is above 50%, some times, you know, close to 60%. So he's doing much better than Trump ever did, right? Trump never broke 50%. And uh, uh, so from that perspective, he's doing very well in general. I think people like Joe Biden. I, mean, I think they like him as a person and they like his message. Um, uh, when you look at uh, some of the specific questions, I mean, who would do a better job helping the economy? Probably, Americans still say it's the Republicans, even though you know, the economy is doing quite well under under Biden. And now, whether it has anything to do with Biden is a different story, right? Or we're just recovering and would have been recovering under Trump. I mean, to be fair to Trump, I think we would have probably been recovering under Trump too. Um, and um, but in in general, I think that that uh, they thought think he's done a pretty good job around COVID. 
Um, and um, uh, I think he has done a very good job of not being distracted. I mean, remember a couple of months ago, there was the Republicans tried to make a big deal out of what's happening at the border with Mexico and the, and the illegal immigration. And look, it's, it's numbers wise, it's really bad. I mean, there's no, there's no disputing that. But the issue got no traction, and I think in, in general, and I think in general it got no traction because of Biden just kind of ignored it. You know, he's, I'm just not going to be distracted by this. You had fighting between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians, which past American presidents might have jumped in and said, oh, I got to get in the middle of this and try to sort. He just more or less ignored it. And I think that his discipline has been very helpful to him. Now, whether he can continue that, uh, uh, look, the, the biggest issue he faces right now is the passage of, uh, I mean, they got the first COVID relief right. bill passed. They now have to get this infrastructure bill passed, yeah. which is the next big issue. Um, uh, we'll know uh, there's a vote tomorrow to begin the process of getting it passed. We'll see how that goes. Um, my personal view is they have to get action on this quickly because with most infrastructure spending, it, the tail of these things, I mean, it takes forever to actually, you know, get some guys out there on the road actually laying pavement or, or fixing bridges. And if from a Democrat party point of view, if you want the voter to see some results of this money by fall of next year, you better get this process going now because it, it, it's going to take months before the money actually starts to flow and the, and the work starts to get done and people say, oh, this is good. This, I like this. My cousin got a job, that kind of thing. And um, the third element, which is the social infrastructure, right. which has widespread support. Every element of this is supported by a majority of the American public. And of course, the fiscal infrastructure, every, people love this. You know. But the, even the social infrastructure has widespread public support and the Republicans are adamantly against it. And whether the Democrats have the votes is not at all clear because some Democrats have some questions. Um, and of course, this has some international implications because both the fiscal infrastructure bill and the social infrastructure bill may have a lot of elements of the climate change agenda. Mm -hmm. And if, if the US can't deliver on the climate change agenda, then any promises we make in Glasgow in November are right. kind of hollow uh, going forward. So watch the space, even though he has, as you say, public support, translating that legislatively, given the polarization that you've described, is his real test. But because he's a legislator, having, I think, elected in 74 and then served, what, 30 plus years yeah. and then was vice president for the other, he probably, but more so than most previous presidents, with that experience and knowledge of how it works, should be reasonably placed if anyone can do it, probably Joe Biden might be able to. And bear and bear in mind that we have a long history in the U.S. of the after two years of a particular president being in power in the White House, his party tends to lose um, support in both the House and the Senate, but lose big time. Like and he, and the margins are so little now that he'd be effectively yeah, lose the I Senate mean, and the House. Could be controlling both houses of Congress by 2023, and then any. Biden administration agenda is dead in the water, I think.
and, and to bring that back to Canada, our roadmap was what, what I interpret from what you're saying is that we've really got to move on that. We have an election in the intervening times, but right. we shouldn't waste time. We should be pressing the United States to move I on agree. this because my own sense is the United States wants this to use Canada as a kind of demonstration to the rest of the alliance that, yeah, you, America really is back because if you can't get on with Canada, who can you get on with? And look, I'm very much in favor of, and I've never seen much uh, discussion of this, I'm very much in favor of trying to build institutions with partners so that they're a little harder to unwind, you know, when you get ups yeah. and downs of the politics. And, you know, Jean Monnet, who was one of the founders of the European community, now the European Union, said, you can't get anything done without individuals and they can't last without institutions. <laughs> and, you know, I think we need to be thinking about in the US-Canada relationship, are there some institutions we need to build between the two of us uh, to deepen this and cement this relationship better. Well, it's certainly been how it's worked up to now. Charlotte, I, I know the audience will have some more questions. Please take advantage. Hi, Colin, thanks. Uh, I think that this is a, a good spot to, to ask a question from uh, Jacob Irving. He asked, how can Canada help support US democracy? Is it one of those strange situations where we are best to keep quiet step back and allow the U.S. to sort its own issues. Internationalism and listening to other countries seems strongly unpopular, even inflammatory to those whose opinion needs to be swayed. Well, certainly, I think if, if we had a lecture from Canadians about how we should fix our democracy or amend our constitution, that would not go over well with most Americans. So that's probably not the approach to take. But I do think that you know expressions that, that it matters to people that um, we want the US democracy to function because it's good for Americans, but it's also good for the world, I think would be uh, supportive. And frankly, you know, whatever demonstration effect Canadians can have uh, saying, well, you know, this initiative or that initiative uh, is not the end of the world. I mean, I don't know the debate in Canada, I'm sure, but I mean, look, I've always been an, an advocate of, I think people should be required to vote. You know, I think like in Australia, the Australians do that. The Belgians do that. And even if I didn't like the outcome of all of people voting, at the very least, it would it would it would be an accurate reflection of where the body politic was at a given moment. And now when you have an election in the U.S., you say, well, you know, it's an expression of those people who bestirred themselves to get up on a rainy day and go to the polls. And I do think that um, uh, anything that Canada can do, not necessarily in requiring voting, but anything that they can do to say, look, here, we've experimented with this kind of innovation in democracy. And you know, the, it did, wasn't the end of the world. <laughs> it, it worked, it helped. And I, you know, wh whatever that might be, you're still gonna get people who say, no, no, we have to suppress the vote and we don't want certain minorities to vote. That's, that's part of our partisanship. But I think that any, any good example of uh, innovations in democracy are always helpful to the, to, uh, the pro-democracy sides in the US. And, and throughout the world, because I think others can learn, have challenges as well. Further question. I think it is a good time to uh, switch to the, to the topic of social media. Uh, one sure. person um, 
ask, can you talk about how social media plays a role on many of the topics that you talked about, especially amongst uh, different age groups, such as 18 to 24, 25 to 49 and 50 plus. Uh, and that person said that it would also be helpful to hear your views, Bruce, on how the opinions of young people are obtained. Well, I mean, I think it goes without saying that we think at least that opinions uh, of younger people are formed increasingly by social media. Uh, they don't watch traditional media uh, or listen to or read traditional media in the same way uh, that say my generation uh, did. Because look, when I was growing up, there were three television networks in the United States and they all said the same thing. So, I mean, it was, <laughs> there was no diversity of opinion. Um, and, um, uh, in terms of, of um, the opinion of younger people, I mean, I think, you know, we should on one hand, you know, take their opinions very seriously. Uh, they are their opinions. And, and, you know, Napoleon said years ago, uh, if you want to know a person's worldview, tell me what was happening when he was in his 20s. Hmm. And so we, we, you know, we form our worldview at a particular time. And we carry much of that with us for the rest of our lives. And I would be the first, I'm a product of the Vietnam generation. And I would be the first to acknowledge that. That said and done, uh, those people don't vote in the United States, even though they voted at a higher level in the last election than they ever have. It's still 20 percentage points lower than my generation. So a long way to go. Um, and, um, and certainly some of their opinions will change as, as younger people, you know, have families and have mortgages and are middle of their careers and, and all sorts of things that, again, influence how all of us feel about issues and, and the world, et cetera. But the advantage of this younger generation is they are more internationalized, not only through social media, but also through travel and education study abroad than they've ever been. There are more Americans who study abroad now than ever before. Um, and they study all over the world. When I was a student, I was one of only a couple of my friends who studied abroad and we all studied in Europe. Now, my daughter and her friends all studied abroad and none of them studied in Europe. Hmm. And I think that's that's good for the. It's not good for transatlantic relations, maybe, but it's good for America's younger generations' engagement with the world. Hmm. Thank you, Charlotte. So uh, you you kind of outlined some of the priorities of of Americans today. So how should these priorities translate in budget priorities? Should Congress increase or decrease funding for the State Department, USA, the military, the US Trade Representative? And another person that, that links to that is, what are the opinions of Americans on international development and where do Americans want to invest under the Biden administration? Well, I think it's safe to say that Americans don't want to spend money on any of these things. And so the question is, is a fight at, 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 at every level um, in terms of priorities. Um, you know, I think it is shameful that the United States does not spend more on foreign aid, but that's been the case for my entire adult life. Um, 
I don't see that changing much going forward in the Biden administration. It's not a high priority. There might be some at the margin, some increase, but um, uh, the, those government agencies that you mentioned, uh, as someone who spent much of his, his journalistic career uh, very close to USTR, USTR deserves more money, but I mean, it's a small group of 200 people who are maybe some of the most talented people in the US government. Um, and there have been times in the past when they had to use free from flyer miles to go to trade negotiations. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it, this is a, a shame. And the State Department is a perfect example. I mean, as many of your viewers may know, um, my wife is the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman. And one of the challenges they face is repopulating the State Department. The State Department has been devastated by the Trump administration. Uh, jobs weren't filled, people left, and this is gonna require uh, resources and time to rebuild the State Department. And it was understaffed to begin with. And um, whether those resources will be forthcoming to the degree that they're necessary, I think the Biden administration will ultimately, I don't know the budget numbers, but I'm sure that Biden administration is gonna do more. I mean, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State is a close confidant of the president for many years. So I'm sure that there will be a, a good boost in the budget, but um, whether it's enough and whether it's sustainable and whether just how long it takes to rebuild the talent in that in that agency, I think is 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 going to be one of the challenges. And and you know, there's people should bear in mind there's also the challenge in the U.S. government, not just the State Department across. It's like we need to have a U.S. government bureaucracy that looks more like America. You know, we need to find more minorities, more women. Um, and uh, that takes time. Uh, and there was resistance by old white men like me <laughs> to that. And I think that, um, uh, you know, that's going to be one of the challenges. And then there's the challenge of finding people with the skill sets that are necessary for the new era. I, I know from my wife's time in the State Department before and now, how do you get people who have cutting edge technology talent to come to work for the US government at a US government salary. When if you're really good on technology issues, why would you go to Silicon Valley and make a lot of money? And probably do more in many ways, cutting edge stuff. But the government needs people with technological talent to understand the policy that's necessary to govern this new age and so that's one of the challenges they face in recruiting. Hmm. Charlotte, a last question before I ask Bruce what he's reading or streaming. Absolutely. I, I think it leads into uh, a question about Congress. So how does congressional opinion impact America's willingness to shoulder global burdens or opinion based on party only or are there coalitions? Uh, there are coalitions. I mean, there are uh, Republicans who, who deeply believe in international engagement as well as Democrats. Um, I mean, I think that um, there is a growing congressional consensus on being tough on China. Now we can debate whether the U.S. should be tough on China, but there's a growing congressional consensus on that. I think there's a, as a shared consensus on being tough with Russia. Um, so I, I do, I, and, you know, basically, there's pretty much of a consensus on trade. I mean, um, I think people believe trade's good for the country, you know, 
it doesn't mean we're going to have trade promotion authority passed anytime soon or trade agreements done anytime soon. But, but people, I think, are the, the protectionist caucus in the U.S. Congress is not what it used to be. Let's put it that way. So coalitions can exist. Okay. My final question to you is, what are you reading or streaming these days? Well, what I'm reading, I can't even remember because it's like <laughs> bad detective novels or whatever. But I am streaming two things right now that I would highly recommend to any of yours. One is a an Icelandic detective series, television series called Trapped, which is really well made and fascinating and compelling. And then uh, for those of any history buffs in the audience, there is a French television series called The French Village that portrays life in a French village during occupation. Um, and I would warn people, there are probably about 90 episodes of this thing, so it takes forever to watch it. But it is a fascinating portrayal of how life and personal relationships among people in this small village were affected by the German occupation and how good guys became bad guys and bad guys became good guys and, and you know, lovers came together and fell apart over these issues. And it was just, it's, it's a really, really well done episode, uh, TV series. All right, so Trapped and, sorry, what was the, the name of the French one? The French, it's called The French Village. The French Village, okay. And I, and I might recommend something I finished called The Restaurant, okay. which is a Swedish uh, television series about a family in Stockholm that owns a restaurant in the post-war period. And it's just a family drama, but it's really, really well done. Excellent. Well, as we, we're emerging in Canada from various states of lockdown, but we're still streaming more than we've ever done. So thank you for those uh, suggestions. And thank you, Bruce, for joining us on this CJA webinar. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, you can find the podcast on iTunes or wherever else podcasts are found. If you like the show, please remember to give us a rating. It really helps the podcast grow. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI, and thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange.